the good old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the good old Grateful Dead cast. We've got the last of our three episodes about St. Louis for you today as we dig into the music and stories from the Grateful Dead's 1973 shows at the Keel Auditorium. All of this wonderful music is featured in the new Grateful Dead box set, Listen to the River, St. Louis 71, 72, 73. And through season four, you can get new episodes of the good old Grateful Dead cast right here every other week. Visit us at our website, dead.net slash deadcast, and check out the extra materials we have for you to explore for this episode. Also at dead.net slash deadcast are all of our past episodes, including complete seasons one, two, and three, and you can link from there to any and all of the podcasting platforms available so you can listen where you like to listen. Please help us by subscribing, hit that like button, and leave us a review. It helps more than you know. Thank you. The new Grateful Dead live archival release has arrived. It's in stores. It's entitled Listen to the River, St. Louis 71, 72, 73. This set includes seven previously unreleased concerts from St. Louis, recorded on December 9th and 10th, 1971 at the Fox, October 17th, 18th, and 19th, 1972, also at the Fox, and the focus of today's episode, October 29th and 30th, 1973 at the Keel Auditorium. Production of the 20-CD set is limited to 13,000 individually numbered copies and will also be available in its entirety as a digital download exclusively at dead.net in Apple Lossless and FLAC 192.24. Dead.net will also exclusively release Light Into Ashes, Fox Theater, St. Louis, Missouri, 10-18-72 as a double LP on 180-gram custom vinyl. Limited to 7,200 copies, the set focuses on an exceptional hour-plus jam plucked from the Grateful Dead's October 18, 1972 show at the Fox. The breakout show from this set is Fox Theater St. Louis, Missouri 121071 and will be available as a 3-CD set and a limited edition 5-LP set also on 180-gram vinyl. All of these configurations of Listen to the River, St. Louis 71, 72, and 73 are available now. You can get more info and check it all out at dead.net. Well, we've come to the last two of the St. Louis shows in the Listen to the River box set, Keel Auditorium, October 29th and 30th, 1973. The band was getting bigger. The audiences were growing larger. They had outgrown the Fox Theater and needed to play a larger room. The Grateful Dead had just released Wake of the Flood, so there was a fresh batch of tunes to play for the citizens of River City, and play they did. Both of these shows are filled with great jams and deft performances. We've got another stellar assemblage of guests in this episode, including Sepp Donahauer, Tony Dwyer, Steve Brown, Tom Peloza, Dre Stein, John Ellis, Jan Mahan, Bill Mahan, David Lemieux, Graham Boone, and more archival interview audio with the band. Time to head on down the river with Jesse Jarno. Don't 
In October of 1973, the Grateful Dead returned to St. Louis for two shows at the Keel Auditorium. The shows now comprise the last discs and narrative conclusion to the new Listen to the River box set. Grateful Dead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux. The thing that I love about the box, amongst all the great things in it, is the story it tells. Mickey's just left, Pigpen is back, Skull and Roses. That is one band. That is one version of the band. It's all very distinctly Grateful Dead music, but it's very distinctly one style. October 72, very different than it was in December 71. And then October 73 is a very different band once again. And that's what I love about the Dead. Um, really, I mean, amongst everything, the one thing I, I can always come back to is how different Grateful Dead music is, if not tour to tour, year to year, but it's still very distinctly Grateful Dead music. And that's why I have no trouble at any time putting on a 1994 tape or a 1984, or a 1977, or a 72. To me, I get such great joy in all eras of Grateful Dead because they're so distinctly Grateful Dead and not like anything else in my entire music collection. Backstage at the Keel Auditorium before the second show, a college student named Danny Ruby interviewed Jerry Garcia and asked about the future. Garcia told him, We roll like a river. We just ride out the course. If we are headed in a particular direction, then it's irreversible anyway. Today we point the dead cast back down the big river of the mind to the Keel Auditorium, fall 1973. The Grateful Dead in St. Louis. Keel Auditorium. October 29th Keel and 30th. Auditorium. 1400 Market in Street. In St. Louis. At 7 p.m. The Grateful Dead. All seats $5. All seats reserved. Keel Auditorium. In St. Louis. The Grateful Dead. Come on, pretty women. Got it? After eight shows in three years at the Fox Theater, capacity 4,500, and one at the similarly-sized Keele Opera House, it was time to move up. Once again, our story begins with Tony Dwyer of Sky High Associates, who, with Sepp Donahauer and Pacific Presentations, co-promoted the shows in St. Louis in 1972 and 1973, working with Sam Cutler and Out of Town Tours. Thanks to Tony for these great radio ads, and thanks to David Gans for transferring them. Don't forget, see and hear The Grateful Dead October 29th and 30th in St. Louis, produced by Pacific Presentations and Sky High Associates. Going back to this buddy of mine, Jim Maxwell, who had made the guitar straps for Garcia and Weir and me, and he was doing uh, front work for Barry Fay for various shows this Summer of 1973, I get a phone call from Maxwell. I'm in St. Louis, and he's in upstate New York. And he says, uh, get your ass over here. And I said, to where? And he said, Watkins Glen. So I hop in the car with my girlfriend at the time, and we drove to Watkins Glen. And we get there, and, you know, it's the band, the Grateful Dead, and the Almonds. Garth Hudson of the band, jamming his way out of a rainstorm at the Watkins Glen Summer Jam in July 1973, attended by an estimated half million people, the biggest music festival of the 60s and 70s. 
If the Dead's gig at the Hollywood Bowl in 1972 is a breakthrough, except Donahauer told us in the last episode, Watkins Glen was another leveling up. I get there, and I've got my my briefcase. I've got a fucking uh, Lacoste shirt on, a pair of jeans. My girlfriend's got frizzy hair four feet out on either side. And we get up to the stage, and Sam's up there, and he sees me, and he throws his two backstage buttons. We go back. Every promoter in the world was there. I mean, everybody. Graham was there. Sepp Donahauer was there. One of the Belkin brothers was there. Shelley Finkel and Jim Coplick obviously were there. So anyhow, we get there, and Sepp says, Tony, come on over. Uh, you know, we, we go, uh, let's talk about what we're going to do in October. And that's where the whole thing for the 73 shows was hatched. I wanted to do Halloween, and we couldn't get it because they were going to do Chicago. Seth Donahauer of Pacific Presentations. I don't know whether it was a date issue. It might have been an availability issue, or they just wanted to make some more money. You know, it could have been financial reasons because the cost of touring and everything, you know, it's, it's a business. Acts like to work their way up to larger rooms. Well, and also it might have been like after you've done one thing a couple of times, maybe it's time to try something new. By email. Tony added that he and Sky High Associates proposed a five-night Fox Theater run for October 1973, which would add up to slightly more than two nights at the Keel. But the band's schedule was tight, and, they promised, their new sound system would be able to tame the arena. I was concerned about the sound, and I was promised that there wouldn't be an issue that we would be using the same sound system as used at Watkins Glen, sans the speakers in the back. I go to Long Island and hang out on the beach for a week and then go back to St. Louis to get to work on the show. And I realized this is a monumental tour. We, you know, we got to sell 20,000 tickets, 21,000 tickets. we better get to work. 1973 was a monumental year for the Grateful Dead. That year, the band took nearly all of their business into their own hands, launching Grateful Dead Records and releasing Wake of the Flood. They had their very own press department for the first time, and they mobilized their forces. They were also a huge band, playing stadiums and arenas. In the months surrounding the band's fall tour, Rolling Stone, popular music's magazine of record at the time, devoted multiple stories to the band and their world, including a feature on Alembic, the band's sound offshoot and culminating in a cover feature a few weeks after the trip to St. Louis. Helping to run the radio promotions for Grateful Dead Records in the fall of 1973 was Steve Brown. A while back, Rich and I visited Steve in California. Steve went way back with the dead, before they were the dead, to Palo Alto, circa 1963. Please welcome to the Deadcast, the most excellent Steve Brown. We uh, went to the tangent, and there was uh, this guy playing guitar with this gal, you know. We didn't know who they were, you know, stuff. And then later on, uh, when I went back down there later, uh, a year or two, this was 63, I think so, about 64, was it? Yeah, there was this uh, bluegrass band that he was also in, this guy Jerry, you know, and uh, some other people. He was the same guy, but he was uh, playing banjo and doing stuff, and uh, he had uh, about four guys, I think it was. After that, I didn't really see them until they appeared as the Warlocks all of a sudden at a couple of clubs. At this point, I'd been out of local San Francisco radio, KSFO, where I'd worked when I started when I was 15 years old, you know, working there. And uh, I got into the record 
distribution business and promotion business uh, by 65. And so I was, the my route was the peninsula. So all of a sudden, everybody's talking about this band, the Warlocks. You got to go see them. You know, they're playing down here, playing over here. You go see them. And so I checked them out uh, at one point, uh, and then uh, it's a pizza place. And then another time, uh, they were playing a, a run uh, at the uh, in room in uh, Belmont. And I went to all those gigs. Those were great. And we'd go out in the back uh, where the cars were parked and stuff like that, sit in the cars with them and smoke. <laughs> what was cool about the in room is you go in and it's this long bar and it's like stewardesses and guys that work in insurance and stuff all along sitting at the bar. And then it makes an L down at the end. And that's where the stage was. And that's a bunch of hippies that are new seminal new hippies that are transferred from beatniks or whatever, or their parents were beatniks and now they're hippies, whatever, and uh, college kids. And here's this guy that looks like he's in a biker gang doing the lead singing on this thing. And these guys are all like playing behind him, basically. And he's like the show. You know, he's the one you're watching. But I'm noticing the guitarist is kind of cool, too. You know, he's playing OK. And uh, there's this young guy playing rhythm with him and stuff. And so it was really kind of seeing this pig pen band <laughs> when I was seeing. But I recognized Jerry, of course. A few years later, Steve Brown actually got the Grateful Dead some of their first airplay in the most unlikely place. Steve was in the Navy. And in the fleet in Vietnam, because that was my job for the Navy, was to run the recording studio for Westpac Fleet, which was the entertainment system on all the ships where they had speakers in all the different compartments of the ship. And they had four different channels that they could tune into. So I had a whole slave of tape machines that I would put the masters on and then make copies from albums or from tapes I made, whatever, you know, reel to reel in those days, right? And those uh, tapes then uh, were on a menu that went out to all the ships in the fleet and they would order what they wanted to have for their ship, you know? And so I'd be sending out all this different kinds of music, country, Western comedy, you know, blues, uh, rock and roll, a lot of rock. Oh God, I mean, the timing was perfect for the good stuff and San Francisco music, of course, but but the other stuff that uh, went out is, uh, hey, wait a second, I'm on the radio every night for like, you know, five, six hours, depending how long I can keep it on, you know. So I started air checking those and making tapes and sending those out to the fleet. And this was wild stuff because I had people come in and play, you know, live on the air and stuff. So it became like this thing. And then I'd go up and take the Euro tape recorder that the Navy had given me to go around and do these interviews for hometown radio stations and stuff like that. And I'd go on PSA uh, for 13 bucks with my military and get on a plane and fly up uh, on the weekend to San Francisco in my wife's apartment there where we were living and uh, go to Winterland, you know, and record Cream, you know, live with the your Navy's, you know, tape and the Navy's recorder. And then as I'm leaving like that Cream concert, somebody says, you know, the dead are playing on Hate Street tomorrow. And it's like, oh, wow, Hate Street tomorrow. Uh, how much battery and how much tape do I have left? You know, that kind of thing. And uh, so, yeah, sure enough, noon, you know, standing there with my your Navy recorder and Navy tape, you know, Navy camera with Navy, or my camera actually with Navy film in it, you know, some uh, tracks. And that's that picture of Jerry walking up Hate Street that I just turned around. And you probably know the photo of Jerry carrying his guitar down Hate Street, walking under the marquee of the Strait Theater, taken by Steve Brown on March 3rd, 1968. It's hanging in the Fillmore. 
Steve's recording made with Navy equipment is one of the very first Grateful Dead audience tapes. What's funny is when I made this uh, government-made uh, concert tape of Cream Live and the Grateful Dead on Hay Street all in one weekend, I came down and at midnight on Sunday night, I played both of them. Yeah, <laughs> I played because only had five songs on the Dead, and the last song is like uh, uh, Pigpen uh, uh, getting the voice getting higher and higher and higher because the tape's going slower and slower and slower. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, it hurts me too or something is getting, you know, oh, boys. <laughs> it's very weird. But in any case, yeah, I played both of them. So it was kind of a delayed simulcast. That's our tax dollars at work. Needless to say, Steve was more than qualified to do radio promotion for Grateful Dead Records, who were gearing up to full speed in the summer of 1973 trying to make it clear that they would be genuinely running things independently and that this wasn't merely a vanity imprint belonging to a major label. Me and another partner there at uh, Grateful Dead Records uh, were both involved with that, getting to the radio people, especially the ones at the universities where they had radio stations playing that kind of music a lot, especially Grateful Dead. We were uh, going around. I even traveled around uh, for a while going to these stations before uh, the record was even completed. We were trying to set them up to let them know we'd be doing these albums on our own now as Grateful Dead Records and that they would be the ones getting early copies as soon as we had them and that we would, in fact, be able to get them into the shows and all that. So it was kind of just milking uh, the whole uh, record company radio scene out there because we went to the record store distributors and all those people as well. Mainly I did a lot of Northeast travel where we had a real good backing already with Grateful Dead, East Coast. Most of my stuff was done there, and it was done uh, in many cases with uh, locals who knew who the people were there, and I'd connect with them, and we'd drive around and go to all these places and talk to the people at the universities as well. When the band themselves were on the road, they too were dispatched to radio stations. we do the interviews, and the interviews counted as promo. I could get Bobby in easier than I could get Jerry oftentimes. So it was that a month before the St. Louis show, during the run-up to Wake of the Flood, Bob Weir, Keith and Donna Jean Godshow, and manager John McIntyre stopped by WAER in Syracuse when the band was playing in the Northeast. We'll be hearing bits and pieces from this interview today. It's pretty much the only audio I've ever found of Keith Godshow speaking, so it's cool to get his perspectives, too. When's the album coming out, Bob? October 15th, I believe, is the release date. We took the entire month of August off and, uh, and went in there every day. Started the day we got back from Watkins Glen. Yeah, started recording the day we got back from Watkins Glen, finished recording the day, the day before the day we before left. We left. So, what songs are on it, Bob? The first side starts off with uh, Half Step Mississippi Uptown Toodaloo. And then the second song is Keith and his song, Singing Blues Away. And the third song is um, uh, Row Jimmy Row. The fourth song is Stella Blue. And side, or song one, side two is. Um, here comes sunshine and then eyes of the world, Thanks, and then and then my sweet the weather report sweet parts or the prelude parts one and two. It was actually the second new Grateful Dead release in a few months. Over the summer, the band's now former label Warner Brothers released the last record from the Dead's old contract, their third live album in three years. This one featured tracks recorded at the Fillmore East in February 1970. It was called History of the Grateful Dead Volume One. Bear's choice. Oh. 
It represented the first release of some of Owsley Stanley's Sonic Journals, which we've talked about on two bonus Bear Drops episodes. Bear's choice included the first appearance of the now infamous Marching Bears, appearing on the back cover via artist Bob Thomas. We tried to at least initiate a sort of a history of the Grateful Dead program with them by, by labeling that History of the Grateful Dead Volume 1 so that hopefully they'll follow suit and say History of the Grateful Dead Volume 2, Volume 3, and that's what they can name their best of albums. But, you know, it, it's all, all together up to them. You can tell the interviewers are heads. They even ask if the band is cool with the taping scene that was self-organizing at full force by 1973. Keith is cool with the taping scene. I think it's far out. I, I think it's okay as long as they don't, as, as long as they don't try to make a lot of bread off it and, and try to promote it in a big way because most of those performances and the recordings are just not up to any sort of quality standards that I can. Yeah. As far as as far as I can tell, the people that are into it really like the music, and that's that's the reason they do it. Right. I mean, if they want to take it, tape it, and take it home and, and listen to it and roll in or whatever. It's perfectly fine by me. A few weeks after this interview, Rolling Stone would publish an article titled Mr. Tapes of Brooklyn about Les Capel of the Dead Relics Tape Club, soon to be the founder of Relics Magazine. Les and the Relics crew, which included all-timer hero concert recordist Jerry Moore, were the vanguard of the Deadhead's live taping revolution. The band didn't officially sanction concert recording until 1984, more than a decade later, but by 1973, there were free Grateful Dead tape exchanges in a half dozen cities. Clearly, the demand was there. Maybe someday we'll release another sort of Beer's Choice album, which is just a, a sort of a, a pick of some of our tape archives. Our tape archive grows with every performance. So that, uh, I mean, it'll be a good long time before we get around to doing anything like that again, but we might do it again. Weir was right on both counts. The archive certainly did continue to grow, and it certainly was a good long time before the band put out anything else that resembled Bear's Choice, called from a two-track live recording. Twenty years, in fact, the very first Dick's Pick, released in 1993 and recorded at the very tail end of the full fall 1973 tour, which John McIntyre announced on that radio broadcast in Syracuse. The whole country will be covered starting the uh, 15th of October and going through the middle of December. The band's machinery was both growing and constantly changing. Sam Cutler, out-of-town tours, the booking agent. He was the road manager, and then he was road manager and booking agent. And his booking agency, uh, he handles more than just the Grateful Dead, you know. So uh, that was consuming more and more of his time. So right now, Rock Scully's dude being the road manager, Sam's being the booking agent, you know. So we, we switch around a lot. Back to co-promoters Tony Dwyer and Sepp Donahauer. And I realized, I said, you know, we did 13, 4, 8, 12, 13,500 seats last year, and now we're talking about 21,000. 21,000. They said, that's a big jump. Tony and I collaborated on these dates. We'd sit down, figure out a marketing plan, where to put what dollars, agree on a marketing plan. He'd execute it part of it, and I'd do some of it, and then uh, put the show on. And he was a delight to work with. We still talk like every week, <laughs> 50 years later. 
they weren't a shoe in act back in the days. You had to promote them. You just didn't like whisper it on the sidewalk and it would sell out. Few markets like that, but most of the markets you had to work the dates to fill the house. A lot of promoters didn't know how to reach their audience because you know the 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 Grateful Dead's audience was a specific segment, you know, the demographic and the age demographic, you know, for concerts. And you had to know how to go get the word to them, you know, within a wide geographic range. So you had to be, you had to know, have some, you know, marketing uh, expertise, you know, to their customer, which goes along with what style of graphics you do, how you do your radio spots, what radio station you're, you're on, which counterculture tabloid are you in, you know, a lot of stuff goes into getting the word out and getting everybody there. I write a letter to Rakow. I get on the phone to Sam, get on the phone to John McIntyre, and I said, you know, guys, I need some help. I mean, I know it's on me, but I need some help. Wake of the Flood had just been pressed. I said to Rakow, I said, you know, put uh, Steve on a plane and bring a copy of the fucking record. So he did that. Steve stayed at my house, and we went out to KC Radio. Providing a wide spectrum of progressive music from all over our planet. 95 FM. Rock and stereo constantly. Keishi Radio. K-S-H-E. Steve remembers it being closer to the day of the show. I wound up being flown there. Uh, I guess it was uh, the day before. And I remember uh, it was either I don't remember the person as to, as honey if it was somebody else that worked in the staff for the uh, for the uh, auditorium that uh, for the show promotion that uh, picked me up and took me through a little tour of uh, St. Louis, which was really interesting because I'd never been there before. I mean, this travel in some parts of the country was new to me. So uh, he was uh, going uh, through a lot of what, I guess, the kind of the racial thing that was going on at that time uh, during those days. And uh, it was uh, kind of an interesting way to uh, wind up going to the auditorium when we went through all these different little parts of town. And uh, he described what was going on between people there. One afternoon, early evening, and Bob Birch was there. And we walked in, and he said, what do you got? I said, well, we got a new Grateful Dead recording, and we got a show in two weeks, so we need some help. And Bert says, hey, okay. So he puts Inagata DeVita on or something, you know, that's 20 minutes long, and uh, puts some headsets on and starts listening to it. He hears Weather Report Suite, and he hears a couple other things. He goes, holy shit. My sweet, that's more like the weather report, sweet. Yet another song about the weather. Listen to the thunder shout. debut premiered there at KSHE that night, two weeks before the show, and they played the shit out of the album. Just played it in, in constantly. 
to be able to hear it on the radio because it came out on the 15th of October, uh, and uh, this was a show on the 29th and 30th. It was a big help. It was a big help. New music, you know, completely different than what they had last heard, and it worked well. It had been a somewhat bonkers fall in the offices of Grateful Dead Records. We were setting up a lot of the stuff from our office there at Fifth Emission in, uh, you know, San Rafael, taking care of all the stuff on phone calls uh, and getting contact with people all around the country as the album came out. We also ran into a thing almost immediately, which is really weird, uh, that we started finding out there was bootlegs coming out of the New Jersey area there and stuff, and we wound up having to talk to people from the FBI, you know, on uh, our phones in the office, which was very weird to get a call at the Grateful Dead uh, office uh, from the FBI. There was that kind of thing happening just right after it came out. They were starting to bootleg it, which was, uh, you know, finally looked at and broken down. And we came up with our own way of printing these things so they could be different looking than the bootleg ones and change a few things on our on our production of uh, the albums. The piracy of Wake of the Flood would plague the young record company. Though the Dead were one of the biggest bands in the United States, they suddenly found themselves with a whole range of new challenges while also continuing to grow, except Donna Howard remembers. They were still in a building stage, you know, and that's why Sam liked working with us because we knew how to go out there and really promote dates. Back in those days, you know, you had to go print tickets and you had to take them out to, you know, make sure you had to go constantly be shuffling the ticket inventories between ticket outlets, make sure nobody runs out. You know, it's a laborious. A lot of, lot of, lot of work goes into it to maximize the gate. Driving that train, The Grateful Dead, October 29th and 30th at 7 p.m. in Keele Auditorium, 1400 Market Street, St. Louis. Reserved seats are $5. Tickets are available on campus at the Record Service, 704 South 6th. Back in those days, maybe a third of the audience was hardcore deadheads, and the rest was the general concert audience. You know, and that over time, the dead, the quantity of deadheads built, of course. But in this initial exposition of the band, you know, and touring them, you know, in the early 70s, they were building that base. You know, so they had to put, you know, the shows had to pull in the ones that are curious, too, and the general concert audience to see what they were all about. The incomparable Grateful Dead is coming to St. Louis. All seats for both nights are on a reserved basis at $5 each. Tickets are available at Discount Records, 611 South Illinois in Carbondale. The Grateful Dead, October 29th and 30th in Keele Auditorium, St. Louis. Produced by Pacific Presentations and Sky High Productions. They weren't everybody's cup of tea, you know, and that's why there was a limited number of promoters that worked with them. Because, you know, they wanted to do things their way not your way. <laughs> so you either were somebody that could work with a Grateful Dead or you weren't, you know, and there was a lot of promoters that, you know, cause you know, they wanted to play extended length sets, you know, play all night and they had all of this equipment demands, you know, and set up costs and so on. Well, we got into a sort of a, a spiraling scene where we had 
have a lot of employees in a, in a huge overhead and this in this PA that we've been building. And in order to pay for it all, we have to play bigger places. In order to play bigger places and get decent sound, we have to buy a bigger PA. And uh, in order to buy a bigger PA, we have to make more money and play bigger places. That was a fucking nightmare. Because Pacific Presentations, Danny Kresge at Pacific Presentations, would get configuration, get blueprints for the towers. And he would send them to me. And I would order the scaffolding and scaffolding and do the timing and whatnot. And then three days later, they said, uh, revision. <laughs> and I'd, you know, I'd call the scaffolding company and say, you know, we need, you know, 14 more four by eight, three quarter inch plywoods. And we need to go, to, you know, 10 feet. We need to go another frame higher. And we got to do this. We got to do that. And then three days later, I'd get another fucking revision. And Danny would write this to guess fucking what. <laughs> we make sure that we stay broke. We make sure that we spend anything that comes in. The whole wall of sound thing was interesting because you're sitting there with the speakers behind you, which, you know, everybody is, you can't do that. It'll all get feedback, you know, and the technical element that makes that work was the twin microphones out of phase. They cancel each other, so you eliminate the feedback. A month after the Kiel shows at the Boston Music Hall, the Dead's crew would stack the speakers vertically and the wall of sound would rise from there. But at the keel, it was already an imposing skyline of speaker cabinets. Most of the tie-dye sound system had been replaced with the newest utilitarian speaker cabinets from Alembic with no speaker grills at all. By early 1973, the phase-canceling double microphone system to eliminate feedback was already in effect. The night before the first show, so it's October 28th, I go to the Hilton, and everybody's there, everybody and their friends. And uh, McIntyre is sitting there, and he goes, I say, hey, Tony, what's up? He said, is the scaffolding up? And I'm not going to tell him that it's not up yet because I wasn't going to pay rent for the fucking theater, well, you know, for, uh, for Keel overnight when I can get the guys there at 7 o'clock in the morning. So I just said, oh, yeah, don't worry about it, John. The, you know, towers will be up. And, you know, sure enough, they got there. And we got the scaffolding up, and it was, it was a fucking trip. Then we had to go out and get a motorized fucking lift to get the speakers up because guys were too tired. I mean, it was fucking unbelievable. Tony had watched the Dead's equipment grow since he first met the band in 1970. That equipment that was used at the Fox in the 1970 show came in a Ryder box truck. And then in 72, it was four 40-foot semis. The 73 shows, I mean, uh, I would say there was at least twice the equipment, if not three times the equipment that went into the 72 shows. Easily. The amount of equipment was massive when it came to the 73 shows. I mean, it was shit everywhere. According to the Rolling Stone feature by Charles Perry that ran the next month, called A New Life for the Dead, there were some 459 speakers in the new system, spread between the musicians, the scaffolding, and the monitor systems. In 1970, the only non-musicians that arrived with the band were Owsley and Ramrod. By 1973, alongside the band, was a support crew of 17. One road manager, two truck drivers, a four-person lighting crew led by Candace Brightman, nine quippies, and someone selling merch. But like the dead, it could change on any given night. They were in big rooms now. The Keel Auditorium definitely wasn't the Fox Theater, as St. Louis head Tom Palazzola remembered. I mean, I saw more shows at Keel than I did uh, practically any place else, I think. I saw a lot there. 
you know, it didn't have the sound that the Fox did, and it it wasn't intimate. I mean, you could get if you had the four the full floor filled and all of the seating. I think you could get around fifteen thousand people in there. So it just wasn't as intimate. Dre Stein, host of KDHX's other one, was there. She'd seen the dead for the first time at the Fox in '72, but the Keel Auditorium was a more regular spot for rock shows. We went to a lot of the shows at Keel, which was. I think around a 12,000 seat venue or maybe even more. It was, you know, huge. It was a very sterile environment in terms of it was a building. It was square. There was none of this art deco insanity that filled the place like the Fox or even the Keel Keel Opera House was once again, much more art deco-ish. It had a lot of just environment that was conducive to creativity to me. Keel, depending on where you sat, the sound was could be good, could be bad. I found it Keel, the further away from the stage you were, if you got back by the balcony, the sound got much better. It boomed a lot if you were in the middle. If you weren't up front, you know, it, it, and then when you were up front, you were outside of the cone, so you lost some of the sound that way too. So if you got back, you got like the perfect spot where the V cone was. But it did have the new sound system. But it was an interesting experiment, no question about it. Visually, of course, it's like a, had a big wow factor. <laughs> you know, when people walk in, <laughs> they look at the stage and go, wow. <laughs> it was unbelievable seeing the wall of speakers there. <laughs> I think the 73 show, if I remember right, was the first time that they, at least in the St. Louis area, they had part of the wall with them in the in the opera house they can only get so much of it in there and while the dead certainly drew an unusual audience of returning deadheads who hung on the band's every move the st louis 73 shows are a good reminder that the grateful dead were also playing to new curious listeners at every stop who'd never seen the band before on the first night at the keel that included the parents of my co-host rich please welcome to the good old grateful dead cast bill and jan mahan We were from Southern California, and when we moved to St. Louis, the people that ended up being our friends thought we were probably the wildest couple initially that they would ever know, being from Southern California, the den of iniquity. And it turns out we were the babes in the woods. We hadn't ever been to a concert like that. When somebody said concert, I was thinking of uh, dressing up, maybe dinner first, and you know, seeing something, well, I can't say that the dad wasn't remarkable, but at any rate, it was it was something entirely different. You know, we knew the Beatles and uh, Elvis Presley and stuff like that, but we never knew any of the uh, groups like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and the Dead and the other groups like that until we moved to St. Louis. And a friend of ours, Don Logie, was a rock and roll enthusiast, and he uh, introduced us to all of these groups that we had no knowledge of, or at least weren't aware of before. We enjoyed doing things with Don and Susan. So anything they suggested that they wanted to do, we we were willing to try. I mean, that's how we got started with skiing is because they all went skiing and it sounded like a lot of fun. The same thing with the music. So going to the Dead concert really led us to a lot of other concerts. Who was my babysitter? Probably one of the Martineau kids. So while young Rich was at home with one of the Martinoff kids, off Bill and Jan went to see the Grateful Dead at the Keel. 
as we were walking in, I do remember one young man walking along the street and commenting, spare chicks, spare change, spare chicks, spare change. (laughs) And that's, we've kind of carried that forward over the years. Oh yeah, we have. John dropped us off. I remember it was dark and he dropped us off on the east side of Kiel. And I think he went to go park, but it was complete melee inside, even you know, like when you even go to the movies or you go to any symphony or anything, it's a quiet, hushed lobby and so forth. Not at all. It was bright lights when we went in and gave them the tickets at the door. And it was just this scene of complete buzz. I mean, it was just fun, loud, noisy, not small groups, just packed people in the foyer. I remember that. And smoke filled. And well, already. Another person whose parents were at the keel was Grateful Dead manager John McIntyre. John uh, McIntyre's parents lived in, I think, in Belleville, Illinois, someplace across the river. And they were elderly and they wanted to go to the show. So John had called me and asked me to reserve two seats for him. And I, I reserved them uh, row one, seat A and B. <laughs> We get there, the, the, the tickets are at the at the, the box office for him. And John comes over, he said, Tony, where are my parents' tickets? And I said, oh, where are your parents? He said, well, they're coming shortly. And I said, well, tell them to pick them up at will call. So he said, well, let's walk over there. So we walk over there and we meet his parents. And I hand them the ticket. I get the tickets and I hand them to him. And John looks at him. He goes, like, Tony, what the fuck are you thinking? He said, you put my parents in the front row? So we, we take the tickets and he said, let's walk back. And we find these two people that are sitting on the first level above the floor front row and we switched tickets with them and we saw two kids just fucking ecstatic that all of a sudden they're sitting front row uh nearly on stage uh and john's parents were you know we're not going to be blasted it was only a few days after steve brown's birthday on the 26th i was 29 years old and on the 29th there i was on the stage and someone took a picture of me hanging on the stage there on the one of the amps and i keep that in my album here <laughs> anyway that was uh, a good time for me because uh, i was just really ripe i'd been in the uh, record business and radio and uh, had a band out of the Haight ashbury that i played in and jammed uh, uh, a bunch with uh, other people stuff yeah so there was a, a world that just ripened on that particular time when i wound up there in keel and uh, had uh, this whole new world blossoming even further out for myself, you know, which is uh, really a, a, a real special, special time. They blinked the lights, just the perfunctory blinks, and then in we went. And there were already a lot of people in there. And I don't remember the whole seating area being even lit up. I think it was dark when we went in and the stage was all lit. It was showtime. The dead took to the stage in front of a backdrop featuring the Wake of the Flood album art by Rick Griffin. crowd was so enthusiastic and they did sing along and they were on their feet 
and there was a lot of dancing up in front of all the seated area, just like there was at any Dead concert. Besides alternating songs between Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir, the Dead didn't plan their set list at all, as Keith and Donna and Weir told WAER. Uh, kind of a natural pattern. Right. But we played. never discuss what we're going to play. We've got a few starter tunes, and we've got a few ending tunes, and in between is just whatever happens. Danny Ruby of the Daily Illini asked Jerry Garcia about this backstage the next night. We hope that the audience will like what happens naturally, but it all starts on stage. Sure, a lot of people come only to hear Casey Jones, but there are others that come only for Dark Star. We play what seems right at the moment. All the decisions are made on stage. Gone to play a weeping by the pain Danny Ruby also made another astute observation, writing, Rivers are another significant dead image. Possibly the reason lies in the nature of the waterways. Perhaps it's because they lead somewhere. When we get to 73, which is a totally different band by this point than it was even in 72, we've got all of the wake of the flood material that had been introduced in, uh, in February of 73. Plus, they'd now recorded wake of the flood in August of 73. It had come out two weeks earlier, October 15th. So this was, again, a new band with a whole new business outlook as well. Maybe that had something to do with why they played the Keel. They had Grateful Dead records that had just begun. They needed to make some money. At least in the balcony of the Keel Auditorium, though, the prototype for the Wall of Sound wasn't working for John Ellis. Man, you know, that's the one that, you know, I kind of walked out on. That's true, but I have to back up a little bit. That's the first time ever that I didn't have incredible seats. It became much harder to get tickets. By the time they played Keo Auditorium, it was it was easier to get a ticket, but it was easy to get a, a really crappy ticket. As great as they say the 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 wall of sound is, you know, it that thing was designed for certain or came off best in certain venues. My seats were not only on the side, they were up, you know. So <laughs> for me it was kind of slap in the face like, hey who are these new fans? And it's like, I'm used to going to see these guys when there's only a thousand to 2000 people there, you know, or, or the later Fox shows, you know, it was still manageable because it was, I think the Fox holds 4,000 people or so. So, you know, it still seemed like a private party if you had good seats at the Fox. Thankfully, Kid Candelario's recordings at the Keel Auditorium are warm and full. The Keel shows, Dick had given me dat tapes. I still have the dat tapes in my cabinet behind me. Dick had given me dat tapes in 1999 of the Keel shows. It was the first time I'd heard them. And again, they are very, very good shows. And one is another one, and one is a dark star. In addition to that, you get Weather Report Suite, the whole suite. You get Eyes of the World. You get the songs that they weren't playing yet in 1972. Near the end of the first set on the first night, they get to the material new to the repertoire since their last pass through town at the Fox Theater the previous October. There's an electrified version of the George Jones hit, The Race Is On, written by Don Rollins, previously sung in 1969 and 1970 by Bob Weir, with Bobby Ace and his cards from the bottom of the deck, the new riders of the Purple Sage and the Acoustic Dead. In the spring of 73, 
Not long after sitting in with the new riders, they revived it with the updated Bakersfield bed sound. Now the race is on, here comes part of the backstage. Barnes are going to the inside. My tears are on the back. And then it was on to three of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter's most beautiful new songs. Broken heart, don't feel so bad. You ain't got half of what you thought you had. Rock your baby to Row Jimmy was among the new songs written with parts for Donna Jean Godshow. Tom Palazzola. Song-wise, they were kind of working on some of the things that were coming out on Wake of the Flood. So there was some of that that I wasn't familiar with, but, you know, getting to hear some new music from them was pretty, pretty fabulous. And there was, of course, Eyes of the World, written with Swing Despair, and a big gang sing-along with entwined guitar parts by Jerry Garcia and Bob Weir. Dead Freaks at WAER made Weir speak out Robert Hunter's lyrics for them. Can't we can find out that you are the eyes of the world. Great. What's the line after that? <laughs> out of curiosity. The heart has its beaches, its homeland and thoughts of its own. Song that the morning brings. The heart has its seasons, its evenings, and songs of its own. The words are Hunter and Melody of Christian. At the keel, as with most versions of Eyes of the World from 1973, it was performed as, as it was debuted earlier in the year, seemingly conceived as the first half of a two-part suite in which it was followed by a delicate Jerry Garcia Robert Hunter song, China Doll. I love the way everybody in the band is playing little delicate bits of lead parts. Yesterday I begged you Before I All I leave behind me is only what I found. The song would become an outtake from Wake of the Flood, but returned on From the Mars Hotel in 1974. Take up your child. 
Made Live, The Eyes of the World China Doll Suite is everything the studio dead couldn't contain. The album version of Eyes of the World was truncated. It's edited down to, uh, to just the head of the song, a couple of bars in between each verse of uh, up riffing, and then uh, at the end, a sort of an extended bass solo. The Dead Freaks Grilling Weir were obviously fans of the tune and have a pertinent question. Does it get into the 7 4 jam? No, it does not. You know, the part in 7 4. <laughs> version from the first night at the Keel. Thankfully, that piece of music survived in Eyes of the World up through the end of 1974, when the band took an extended break from the road, recorded nearly every single night by the band's crew. Though Eyes of the World is credited to Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter, that piece of music developed organically over the course of several performances in early 1973 beginning from a bass riff by Phil Lesh. And if you like that before we got more material <laughs> From the sounds of things, it was a pretty different vibe at the keel compared to the Fox. Jan Mahan. I remember one thing that's a bit off color, but I'll tell you anyway. It was intermission, and Susan suggested that she and I would go to the ladies' room. And I use the term loosely. And so she knew where it was, and she took me there. And we walked in and there was sawdust all over the floor. And I said, Susan, (laughs) what is this for? And she said, I'll tell you later. So we were in the ladies room and we finished. And before we had left the ladies room, I understood what the sawdust was for. There were a number of young women who were quite ill. It was not a typical theater restroom experience. And at the end of the show, Rich's parents and their friends got the song they wanted to hear. I do know that Susan was very happy because I think they closed with Sugar Magnolia. The ones that Susan and Don introduced us to, and they played a lot <clears throat> that they liked, S- Susan's favorite was Sugar Magnolia. And I've always liked it. It's so up. was out and about both nights. Somehow it was his job. I got to enjoy the shows. That was the good part of it. Sometimes it was backstage just rolling joints and putting them in Jerry's uh, guitar case. But, you know, there a lot of it was uh, being out there with the crowd and the audience and seeing the responses and then being able to uh, talk to people that were there, again, from uh, radio or press and, and keeping them, you know, jacked up, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, it's really fun. It was uh, a good job to have. That week, a student from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana named Danny Ruby followed the band on tour, writing a story for the Daily Illini, and offered this scene report. Outside the Keele Auditorium in a park, Tuesday, waiting for the final show. All around, people are accumulating. Most of those that show up at noon for a 7 o'clock show are genuine deadheads. A carload from Tennessee with the license plate Jed share our bottle of wine. And a guy from Long Island showed up with a tape of Monday night's concert. End quote. It was an extremely fertile period for the Dead's music. 
you can understand why the tapers abounded. Every time we've ever done a 1973 release, St. Louis shows were given consideration. And I can think of several, 10, 19, 73 is one of them. The Winterland box set from, uh, boy, 13 years ago, the November shows. UCLA, San Diego, uh, the Denver shows. It's a well-plumbed period, and for good reason. Like pages in an artist's sketchbook, you can see themes and variations emerging and evolving. One fun part about tracking the Dead's music through the early 70s is hearing the jams and themes that evolved from show to show. For example, the band debuted Truckin' in 1970, played it at the Fox in 71 and 72, but it was only by 73 that the song had finally developed one of its signature moods. From 1969 through 1972, a variation on Paul Simon's Feelin' Groovy appeared regularly in Dark Star. Here it is in Dark Star, recorded at the Fox Theater in October 1972. But by 1973, the feeling groovy jam moved over to the transition between China Cat Sunflower and I Know You Rider. Here it is from the second night at the Keel in 73. Perhaps obviously, there was no vehicle for these jams like the interstellar wonder called Dark Star. In many ways, this was why they went through all the fuss. To build a giant high-fidelity sound system, to record their shows, to do these tours in giant bulky arenas, it was to find moments like these, when they were comfortable enough to play Dark Star. Jerry Garcia famously said of the acid test that they had the freedom to play or not play. That wouldn't be true in later years with tickets and contracts and tours and such, but the dead always held on to that freedom about whether or not to enter into the intimate open musical space represented by Dark Star. For two years in a row, the St. Louis Heads got extended versions. Please welcome back to the Deadcast, musicologist Graham Boone of Ohio State University, our tour guide for some extended stargazing as we once again pass through the transitive nightfall of diamonds. <laughs> I think that in the early dead, you do have that idea of a little bit of a mostly shorter form songs. And it's because where they're coming from, right? They're coming from R&B. They're coming from the Beatles and all this early 60s short form music. But they've been listening to jazz. So they're super interested in long form music. But how do you make long form music? And so they have to craft a sense of time where they have a, pl- a way to open up. And, and so, yeah, Dark Star and some other songs, they're able to start to let go of the chord progression and start to find a way to, it's, it's very frontier music. 
you know, to make a music that isn't just relying on a clear chord progression like Love Light or something, right? So, yeah. I, I don't know. How do you analyze that? It's a lot to think about. But for me, the Dark Star thing really hinged on that 27th of February, 1969 on Live Dead. And, of course, I got that album when it came out. And I just lived inside of that performance of that whole double album for a long time. And I think it did stimulate in me an awareness of the incredible emotional power of harmony and this idea of a free counterpoint that the dead excelled at and that exploration of the limits, you know, where could it lead? And, you know, at that time they did not yet do kind of freak out spacey music in dark star, right? They did that in other places. But for me, that movement away from a secure harmonic underpinning into this, uh, Exploration of really what was E minor, that that other chord, was emotionally very intense because it was unhinged from that home chord. Where was it leading, you know? And so toward the end of that song, there's that climax where all the band comes together. And then with Jerry's climactic riffing, they center it back on the Dark Star progression and they center it back on A major. And on that Dark Star progression, there's a sense of coming home. It's extremely romantic. It's extremely existential. But, you know, retrospectively, you can understand why Jerry could have come to hate it, right? Because it's just such a pat answer to the drama of Dark Star. Because after that, after that moment in February and March, you know, they really start getting into space after that. They start introducing things that go beyond this idea of a romantic climax and a return to the home harmony. And they eventually give up the second verse. I mean, all this, I think, is part of a trajectory of searching for meaning that goes far beyond that original container. Over the next few years, between the versions in early 1969 and autumn 1973, where we're tuning in today, the Dark Star Jam continued to loosen and change shape. This is a really wonderful Dark Star for many reasons. It, it doesn't go into a lot of extremes, but there's a lot of contrapuntal interplay among the musicians, and the recording of this this performance is very beautiful in the way it distributes the band. You have Jerry on the left channel, you have Bob clearly on the right channel, and then around the middle, you have Keith, Phil, and Bill. It makes a really nice distribution. You can really hear things. There's a lot of wonderful definition. It's an improvement over the old tapes that were circulating for sure. And it creates such a nice spectrum of sound. It's a great way to focus on the musical personalities of the players, as we'll hear. This is Bob Weir describing his own musical voice about a month before this on WAER. I just like chords, and I like to, uh, I like to stretch a chordal... Uh texture as far as I can and see if I can create a mood by making richer and richer chords or more simple chords if the, uh, if the situation calls for it. I guess a lot of my chordal ideas come from either Baroque influences or people like Gil Evans. A key to the Dead's improvisation, especially in 1973, is of course Phil Lesh's lead bass playing. Here's how his bandmate Keith Godshow described it in the same interview. The, the typical position of a, a bass player in a band. Phil doesn't really play that role, but he doesn't play solid as like uh, Robbie Danko. Rick Danko in the band plays really straight. If there's four beats in a major, he'll play playing, 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 all on the major, on, on the tonic. Phil's bass playing had other charms. His tone is at the bottom, and it fills in that space. But in terms of a uh, he plays a melody-oriented type of bass. And in terms of where he places his, the notes he chooses to play in the chords, they're not traditional bass notes. Like, the, you rarely catch him playing a root. 
and it pushed his bandmates to new places. Bill's playing really stimulates. It makes it impossible to play straight changes and it really he is really brilliant in, in his, the inversions and voicings of his bass and uh, just to flow with him kind of leads you naturally to play chord changes which flow more and have different different structures and just straight ahead with all that in mind it's time for dark star what you're going to hear as we go into this recording is that it starts out with your classic dark star rhythm which is a swing rhythm so bump, 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 which you can break down into one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, if you want. And that's as opposed to a classic straight rhythm, which would be a one and two and one and two with even beats and divisions of the beat. Now, that's significant because we're going to see through this recording that they, they actually switch, thanks to Bill largely, from swing to straight rhythm and then back to swing. And there's all kinds of play on that swing to straight, which is just classic Dark Star strategy. So, of course, the classic Dark Star tag. Audience is so excited. Jerry playing his classic riff. Listen to how Phil is all over it. Beautiful chords on A, the home note. And there you have a beautiful riff from Keith, and da da da, which is going to come back. Bob is playing a little bit of that Dark Star progression, but Phil is free. Really interestingly here, Jerry is not in the foreground. In fact, in this whole recording, he really isn't totally emphasized, partly because of the balance, but partly because there's so much going on. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, and two. You can hear that nice swing rhythm. Now they're back to one. There, that riff comes back from Keith. And then they go to five, the E minor chord. And then to one, to A again, but, but Bob is playing A minor. He often flirts back and forth between A minor and A major. So, you know, already here at the very beginning, you know, there's some ambiguity about what the chords are. And that's classic dead, right? Beautifully articulated. It's like a poly counterpoint. So here we have the feeling of being in one again. And then five. A feeling of suspended harmony in this counterpoint. And there's that little riff from Keith coming back. And then back to A. You know, we haven't had the Dark Star progression fully played. It's all being, you know, they're dividing the wafer and passing it around among the apostles of this progression. And everybody's got their own take on it. articulating strongly the Dark Star progression, and yet still moving. And so, Jerry hits that high note, and then comes back down, and 
already, Keith is off into another idea. In the early 70s, there were a number of motifs that appeared in the Dead's jams. Putting names on what exactly they are, though, gets a little ontologically tricky. So here they are in the middle of a jam. You know, it's the first jam still. And they're really getting into this counterpoint. Now you can hear them hitting this da-da-da-da on D, Keith imitating Phil, and then an F sharp, no, why? But they're moving, Phil's moving around, and what happens here? One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, Bill has switched out of swing rhythm into a straight rhythm. And this sets up 10 minutes of jamming right there. Four, one, two, three, four, Now here it's as if they're playing a chord progression. Chord of A, the chord of B. And then into what sounds like E minor. Picking up the sense of E minor. Really nice harmonic wandering. Everybody contributing, and then all of a sudden, getting into a funky rhythm, and then in B minor, bump. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's the Solomon's Marbles riff from Blues for Allah. Beautiful. Seven beat cycle. But, you know, not everybody's onto it, so he kind of smooths out into an eight-beat cycle. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Solidly on B minor. Here we get a little bit of West Montgomery from Bob. Interesting jazz stylings in his comping in this era. Still on B minor, and they're exploring that Solomon's Marbles idea, which is just coming together. You know, the fascinating is that Jerry's right in the middle of it, but he's not leading the pack. He's just part of what's going on. It makes this really very special. Dead scholar Light into Ashes made a deep dive into what he calls the proto King Solomon's Marbles jam a genetically related musical idea. We've linked to it at dead.net slash deadcast. It's a jam motif led by bassist Phil Lesh that the band played throughout late 1972 and into 1973. Here's the jam coalescing in the February 26th, 1973 Dark Star from Pershing, Nebraska, released on Dick's Picks 28. actually sound much like the song King Solomon's Marbles, as recorded on Blues for Allah. But it's still an identifiable mood. 
Another one of the Dead's most famous improv motifs appears in the next segment of the Kiel 73 Dark Star, the descending pattern that tape collectors often labeled the Mind Left Body Jam. So, really nice riff from Keith here. On the key, in the key of A, and listen to the clip notes from different players. This pointillistic style is really a key part of the Dead's ethos at this point in time. Clip notes from Jerry, clip notes from Bob. Of course, the drumming can sound very pointillistic. So they're in A, but then Phil is pushing B, and then Keith comes into B minor. So is it going to be another B minor jam? Uh, all of a sudden, no, because Jerry slows everything down and plays the mind left body jam. And within 10 seconds, everybody's together on it. Now, this is back in the key of A, nicely setting up the first verse and chorus later on. Now, this mind left body jam is completely different uh, from a lot of what came before because it's in such a strict pattern. You know, it's a four beat feel and it's a four bar pattern. So, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, four, two, three, four, one. And it's still in a straight da, 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 da meter, right? So that that shift from swing to straight is still happening 10 minutes later. Beautiful. Bob has a phasing on his guitar. And Jerry's still sitting back, but he's about to start his own solo which is where things get really interesting. Very slow, pensive solo from Jerry rising up to the higher levels of the guitar. Really nice filler from Keith. And then up to the yet higher level, the top octave, Jerry's getting into the slide. So he's taking out a slide. It sounds like a national steel guitar, sort of a rough, floating, sliding pitch evoking that great early blues and all of those traditions that he loved so much. So they really get behind Jerry now. Throughout this jam, it's the same four-beat, four-bar pattern. Listen to Bill. Bill's going just into simple accompaniment. He's going to come out of it a little bit as this thing moves forward. So everything's about interpreting. Each four-bar run-through is a little bit different. Each one, Bob is hitting different notes, Keith is exploring different riffs and accompaniments, and of course, Phil. So they bring it to conclusion. Slowing down. And there it comes. Bill on the 
classic dark star line, but still embroidering it. Jerry hits his own dark star riff, and the progression is off. Really slow, quiet, just beautiful. Setting up that first verse. It's the first time we've heard the progression like this in the whole song. It's been 15 minutes. Just wonderful creation of a long jam. The name "Mind Left Body" is derived from the Paul Kantner song "Your Mind Has Left Your Body," released on Baron von Tolbooth and the Chrome Nun in 1973, on which Jerry Garcia played pedal steel guitar. But Your Mind Has Left Your Body was recorded in December 1972, and the theme appeared in Dead Jam starting about eight months earlier. The thing about it is that that descending riff is so fundamental, and it comes up in so much music that it can come up for different reasons. I mean, Phil doesn't apparently he has no interest in the idea that would have come from Paul Kantner, right? And he could see it from other places. Dear Prudence, of course, uses that riff, and you know, there's been a number of different songs that people have talked about. It actually goes back for centuries. The falling tetrachord, as it's called, is one of the most important. Uh, stock bass lines in the Baroque era, and uh, often tied to laments, but also used for other things. So I think when it comes up, I mean, it's just a great, it's just a great thing, you know, <laughs> that falling line. And it isn't always in the bass. You know, for example, on that Marvin Gaye recording that people cite from 1968, the bass is actually playing a drum note on the tonic, and it's the is the high voice that descends. So you can articulate it in all kinds of ways. It's a song called "You're All I Need to Get By" by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. Like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you, and it was plain to see you were my destiny. When Dick Lotfula began releasing shows from the Dead's vault in the early 1990s, he sometimes labeled it the Mud Love Buddy Jam. And as he referred to it on KPFA when filling in for David Gans in 1995, my armpit left the universe theme, which we'll rename soon. There's also an issue because if you name something, that changes it. You know,、uh, you objectify it, you make it into a thing, and in a way, you control it by naming it. Right. So. You know, in my own analyses of Dark Star, I gave names to various things, but I, I feel mixed about it because do, should they have names? I mean, everybody who loves this music knows this stuff through perception that is not verbalized necessarily. And although people like to talk about it, if you start naming things in a kind of an official capacity, like "Oh, that's the Mind Left Body Jam," and you know, Phil didn't like that, right? And I think a lot of musicians balk at the idea that their feeling of serendipity and the complex emotions that they bring to playing something would then be reified into some simple name. Oh, that's this, you know,、um, as if we couldn't handle the fact that it's actually very contested at any moment and comes out of a rich store of memories and possibilities. So yeah, it's a fascinating problem, right? 
it was hardly a fixed piece of music. For comparison, here's a version of the theme for May 19, 1974, coming out of Truckin', released on the Pacific Northwest 1973-1974 box set. As listeners, you tend to fixate on something. It's materialized, and so it exists as a thing. Whereas a, as a player, there's a lot going through your mind, and things can can be very fluid. Things can come out. Memories can come back. And your fingers can lead you into areas that you haven't thought about or that you had gone into before. So it might be, be feeling very different for a player. The difference between an improvisation, a serendipitous moment, an actual strategy of playing something very specific. A lot of things come up. And in Dark Star, you know, you have a lot of things that come up at different times. And you can hear echoes of all kinds of ideas, harmonic moves, uh, melodic riffs, all kinds of things that pop up all over the place. Um, and how do you actually, how do you actually set them into an order? You know, I don't know if you should really. It's this art of improv, it's this art of improvisation. You know, a lot, improvisation is not about just inventing something. It's also about who you are and where you've been and what's in your toolkit and how you feel that day. The theme disappeared from the Dead's jams when they took their break from the road, starting in late 1974. But the next year, a very similar progression appeared in Bob Weir's new song, The Music Never Stopped. Here from August 13, 1975, at the Great American Music Hall, a.k.a. One from the Vault, the song's debut performance. Danny Ruby reporting again. By the end of the second night in St. Louis, when the band had started to crank up their closing tunes, and it was clear that everything had come off well, the people got into a partying mood that matched the sincerity, if not the frenzy, of the audience. All around, the people crowded into the spots where they could get a view of the band between the piles of speakers and amplifiers. I positioned myself to watch Jerry as he played a new riff to going down the road feeling bad. In 1974, the band didn't come to St. Louis, only getting as close as Des Moines and Louisville. Jerry Garcia played local solo shows in 74, 75, and 76, continuing a low-key connection with the city. But by the time the Dead made it back in 77, it was no longer Pacific Presentations and Sky High Associates. Things had changed, as Tony Dwyer remembers. We had tried to engage them for shows in 74, I think, and they had written back and said, that they would uh, entertain offers in 1975. Sky Associates and the Grateful Dead never did another show together. And basically, Pacific Presentations may have done one or two after that, and that was it, and they did a fuckload of them. They did a ton of them. 
except Donna Hauer of Pacific Presentations, recalls the period fondly, and for good reason. That whole time window of like 71 through 74, to me, I, you know, I listen to the old stuff. I think that was, that's my favorite time window of the Grateful Dead's music. Because they were young and on fire, you know, and I was young and on fire. But you listen, you know, and I look at all of the box sets and releases that have come out of the Grateful Dead and how many of those are my shows. And I go, wow. So that's really the fertile period, I think, for a lot of these releases. Because you can hear the energy level. In early 1974, Sam Cutler and Out of Town Tours were relieved of their duties as the Dead's booking agents, for reasons far too complex to address here. David Parker and uh, Richard Lauren pretty much took over, and, and the Dead went on hiatus at that point. And so ended that era of the Grateful Dead in St. Louis, covered by the Listen to the River box set. When they came back in 1977, they tried the St. Louis Arena, which is worth mentioning as a postscript here. In early 1979, Jerry Garcia recounted that show, May 15th, 1977, to WLIR-DJ Ray White. It's really hard to tell whether it's going to be a good night or a bad night. Sometimes we've gone into those places. I remember one, there's one in uh, St. Louis that we played about a year ago, I guess, maybe a little longer than that. And, uh, the place is so uh, totally atrocious. I mean, the sound was horrible. It, you know, it just, it was like... You know, every one of us, everybody in the band, you know, after, uh, during our intermission, you know, was like laughable. You know? I mean, you couldn't even complain about it. it was so horrible. It was a horrible fucking room. But it was cheap. It was an old fucking basketball and a hockey arena. I mean, it, it, it was a dome. It was the worst fucking acoustics in the world. I think I saw the Dave Clark Five there in 1965 in an afternoon show. It was worse, far worse than the Armory. There never should ever have been any shows produced there, but there were. But the Dead show at the St. Louis Arena was a good example of how even the band could continue to expect the unexpected, and perhaps doubly so in St. Louis. When we came back for the second half, it was a magical transformation sort of occurred where uh, we sort of gave up. You know, we said, I mean, we'll never, pardon me, folks. Those of you out there who belong to the law, (laughs) uh, we just said, you know, the heck with it. You know, we... uh, I'm not on the law. We'll just do as as well as we possibly can. And uh, and it, it came together. You know, we sort of overcame the acoustics or something like that. I don't know. Maybe there really was something in the water. That show can be heard on the May 1977 box set released in 2013. Of course, there's only one song that can soundtrack our goodbye to St. Louis in the 70s. But for now, we'll just sit right here and watch the river flow. Thanks to all of our St. Louis guests throughout these episodes who have helped uncover these unsung tales surrounding the dead St. Louis legacy. Many moons ago, my buddy George Rankin and I were barbecuing some lunch at my folks' place. We took advantage of being the only ones home, fired up the grill and a fat one, and dropped the needle on side one of my parents' original vinyl copy of American Beauty. As Sugar Magnolia came to an end, we both remarked about what a great song it is, and then looked at each other quizzically as the song started over on its own. Whoa. Heavy. 
I walked back in the house from the patio to investigate and found my mom dancing in the kitchen as she exclaimed, Hope you don't mind. I just love this song so much. My parents turned me on to all kinds of great music, and it was nice to have that in common with them as I was growing up. It was an honor to have them on the podcast today. Thanks for listening, and take care out there. Executive producers for the good old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux. All rights reserved.